Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. This week's episode is proudly sponsored by Bar Green Ellington for all your restaurant and bar needs. Visit bargreen.com for the full portfolio. What has happened to Post Shifters? Welcome back to another episode of the Post Shift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, it is my 250th episode. I started this podcast in January 2019, sort of as almost a cathartic way of putting my ideas and my rants and all my things down on, on paper, plus getting to know some of the people that I, I class as peers, mentors, uh, friends. Um, I'm really fortunate today to have the legendary Jim Meehan. Um, I, I've looked up to Jim since I started really in the cocktail scene in North America in 2009 with Clive's, and it was never for the cocktails he created or anything like that. It was really about the culture, his business mantras, and sticking to your mission statement because we're going to get into it a little bit when we start talking a little bit about PDT. Like, it is a scary thing to open your own place. It's a scarier thing to open your own place in a niche. And it's a scarier thing to keep a certain level of service and decorum attached with your brand to really push that brand forward. Even when people are like, well, it's not like a normal bar. Yep. I, and, and these are the same sort of things I, I, I encountered when I opened up uh, Clive's and people saying cocktail culture is not going to last in Victoria, so on and so forth. And so I've always looked up to Jim. I've also looked up to Jim a lot for his um, constant and unbeknownst to a lot of people, constant side hustles. And I absolutely love about it, that about him because as, as most of you know, I always have a side hustle going, but Jim is the king of tangible side, side hustles in my opinion. Like he, he just picks things. So uh, without further ado, I know I kept everybody on the, on the, a little bit of a precipice the other day when I said who was going to be my 250th episode, but I'd like to welcome uh, Jim Meehan. Thank you so much for joining me, my friend. Honored to be here. Congratulations on 250. Thank you very much. Like it, it's been, it's been kind of crazy. Like if you feel like it's going to be quick and then it, it really takes, seems like it takes forever. Um, so I always like, I'm a massive comic book nerd. Um, I always like to hear people's origin stories. So what got you into the, the cocktail business? It's funny. My, I grew up in a, a family of some pretty robust drinking, mostly my dad drinking uh, Miller Genuine Draft uh, after work, but I never really was, I wasn't around cocktail culture at all until I went to college. And a, a friend of mine who uh, was a good friend in high school who went to college where I did at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, Andre Wright, he was working um, at, a, at a tavern called State Street Brats, which is still there. It's uh, been around since the 50s. And he was having a great time. And I needed money to buy, you know, books and beer. And, and it started out being sort of the the accessories of college. And then eventually it needed to be college itself a couple of years later. But I started, uh, Andre got me a job working there at the door. And I worked my way from the door to the grill. And you worked the fry station. And then you worked uh, the actual grill. And then I barbacked. And then I became a bartender there. And I was actually a, a shift manager there by the time I was 20 before I was legally allowed to drink there. So it was, um, it was great. You know, it's funny thinking of what we do now, you know, we were making, you know, we didn't have fresh juice. Everything came out of a soda gun. You know, most of the drinks we served were in plastic cups. It was just the antithesis of what we're doing now, but, um, I really loved it. And I, and I feel like it, it's always been my experience at state street brats has really always grounded everything I do to this day, you know, and I remember 
things like getting my teeth knocked out when we were, you know, escorting someone out or, you know, mopping the floors at the end of the night or, you know, just there were a lot of experiences there. We built a second floor to a, you know, a 50 year old tavern there the, the year the a lot of it had to do with the success of the Packers and the NFL and the Badgers and, and football, you know, that we became sort of a sports bar. But I feel like the while the fashions of our industry change, like what we're serving, what what the thing that we're serving, like, is it cool or not? I feel like um, the fashions change, but the the soul of the job of of service and kind of being uh, a place where people go for community for me has never really changed. So I, uh, I, I have a funny, I, we talked about this in the green room. I have a funny Wisconsin old fashioned story because, um, I started doing TikTok in January as sort of a case study for brands. And I put an old fashioned video up. It got about half a million views, but I've never been hated by a whole state quite like <laughs> posting a classic old fashioned recipe. The whole state of Wisconsin hated me. So later on, I did it, – it was pretty aggressive too. Later on, I did a Wisconsin Old Fashioned. I researched Wisconsin Old Fashioned, read as many articles as I could. So I made a brandy Old Fashioned with the, the sugar cube, lots of bitters, lots and lots of bitters, cherry, orange, muddled, the whole shebang, um, topped it with soda. I actually to- topped it with Sprite. Um, and then – then what came the comment. Brandy old fashioned sweet. Yes. And called. this is the thing that blew me up. Like everybody's like, and then it becomes regional. People are like, oh, that's a brandy old fashioned sweet. I like mine brandy old fashioned right. sour. And then a whiskey right. old fashioned sweet, whiskey old fashioned sour, SoCo old fashioned sweets. And I'm like, this is, this is like a, a whole ecosystem of old fashions. And then I had There's also crazed- press, which is equal parts soda and Sprite. That's crazy. And then I had crazy people saying like, I like mine garnished with pickled mushrooms and like pickled Brussels sprouts and stuff. I'm like, yep. do you literally just have like a, a, a garnish tray sitting out and they just go, can I have one of those, two of those, like Subway for your old fashioned garnishes? It's amazing. It's, it's just an amazing place, Wisconsin. It, it just blew my mind that especially, uh, and same thing what you were saying, like, Old, the way we get taught old fashions and way you'd normally serve them in New York and stuff like that, then you get into Wisconsin and it's a whole completely different animal of a drink. There's a there's a book somewhere over here um, that just came out this year called Wisconsin Cocktails. University <laughs> of Wisconsin Press printed it. The author's name is Jeanette. It's like I forget her. It's like Wilkerson or but um, it is so good and and I feel like she. She covers the Bloody Mary. She covers the old fashioned. She she covers like the iconic drinks, and I think my blurb was something along the lines of like, if you grew up in Wisconsin, this reads you know this is like a totally normal book. But if you didn't, it's like it's like a Coen Brothers script for <laughs> you know how people drink in Wisconsin. It is very accurate. It's very well researched, and it reminded me of living there for seven years. It's a, uh, it's a magical place. <laughs> so what did you study in university? I always wanted to be a doctor, um, since I was very young. And, um, I, so I went to college thinking I was going to be, you know, hoping to be a medical doctor. And, um, I just got crushed by it. We didn't have a pre-med track there. So you had to take, like, you basically had to take the classes that would allow you to like take the MCAT and qualify for med school. And so I was taking math with math people and chemistry with chemistry people and it, organic chemistry. My sophomore year was just the, uh, the end of me that and 
a calculus class. I shouldn't have been in either. So I, I stopped taking, I realized that I literally was like not going to get the grades I needed to, to get into uh, med school. And I also was volunteering at the hospital and realizing that the, the jobs that I thought the doctors did were actually what the nurses did. And so that didn't mean that I didn't want to be a nurse, but I also couldn't have gotten into nursing school. <laughs> uh, so I, I realized that the job I was doing at the bar was a lot, was kind of like what the nurses were doing, except people weren't like catastrophically injured. They were just, you know, at a bar drinking. Um, so I sort of was like, you know what, this bartending thing is a little bit like nursing and, uh, and I'm able to like, you know, help, help and care for a community. So I was, I was seeing the synergies between being a bartender and, and working in healthcare. Although let's be frank, what I was serving was not great for anyone's health. <laughs> Um, so from there, I, I was like, you know what, I, when I was 22 years old, I decided, you know what, I, I, I actually love this job. You know, I started, I started interviewing a lot of the people who came to the bar and, and Madison is interesting because it's the state capital of Wisconsin, but you have the university there as well. So you have people who work in government, people who work at the university, um, a lot of really intelligent, interesting people. And I found that whether, regardless of what people did for a living, they seemed to like really not love their job. And they seemed to like be like potted plants where like they came to the bar, I gave them a beer and they like turned into a human. And I realized like, you know, in some ways being a doctor or some of these other positions was chasing prestige and not chasing um, doing something for my life that was really going to make me happy. And I realized right then and there that like, I actually was really happy doing my job. You know, I wasn't quite sure that I'd maybe be happy my whole life doing it, but I was confident enough that I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to be a bartender when I grew up. And from there, college went from a ladder that I needed to climb to get to another wall to like, let's maybe, I mean, all these people, when I was asking about their job, they also kept saying like, college is going to be the greatest four years of your life. Make sure you enjoy it. And I really wasn't enjoying it. So I dropped chemistry and calculus. I picked up French and an African-American studies class where I called the professor and asked if I could sit in on her graduate level Harlem Renaissance class. And so I went from like these six or 700 lecture halls to, you know, a graduate level class in African-American studies taught by uh, Professor Sandra Adele who's just this like brilliant, she had like a complete PhD. She was super fashionable, just this powerful, intelligent black woman leading this class. And I fell in love with the class. I fell in love with the people in the class. And I ended up taking four of her classes and deciding I'd double major in Afro-Am. So I majored in English literature and African-American studies, which was sort of, um, I did come planning on, uh, wanting to major in English because I always wanted to be a writer too. But the Afro-Am major was something that it wasn't expected and I'm so glad I did it. So do, you finished up university, you finished up college and still got yeah, left took, with a degree and stuff. Minute. I had to I had to take a year off of school to get re- in-state. I, I, was a, I was from, grew up in Chicago. So I was paying, my parents were paying for, my parents paid for my first two years of college. And, and then I took my, the year between sophomore and junior year off worked all year, became a Wisconsin resident. And from there on, I, I was working pretty much full time to help pay for 
the rest of school. So I, I worked, I ended up being, it was five years to graduate, but the fifth year I probably took six classes. Like it was just, I was working wow. full time and kind of going to school on the side. So when you left college, what, uh, where'd you, what was the next so step? Post? I, I graduated in 2001 and it, my brother had moved previously to New York city and I knew I wanted to move to New York like as soon as I could, but I also needed to save money. So I graduated in 2001. Unfortunately, September 11th happened. And then I saved money throughout that whole year and then moved to New York in August of 2002. And from there, was able to land a job at Five Points, which is now VIX on Great Jones Street between Bowery and Lafayette. Um, and they, it was during the day and age in New York where you like still look for your job in the classified or like in, in the newspaper. And every job pretty much said like you for bartending was you need a mandatory of two years of New York bartending experience. Oh, wow. So I, even though I had seven years of bar experience, New Yorkers are famously narcissistic about how they ply their craft as if we all don't tend bar in the rest of the universe. And so even though I had seven years of bartending experience, people assumed it must have been like milking cows or like, you know, whatever. Churning, but, people... churning butter, making cheese. There are a number of New Yorkers who view America as like Florida, Los Angeles, and the space in between the, those two places in New York. So coming from the middle of the country where they fly over, you know, there was no, obviously I couldn't have learned anything of value there. So um, no one would hire me and I, I had to wait tables for quite a while to kind of establish myself behind the bar. So how long did it take between, between that sort of experience first landing in New York in 2002? Because when did PDT open? PDT opened in 2007. How, what was the journey between two? Because that's a that's a quick journey, like landing in New York to opening opening one of the most prolific speakeasy style bars ever. Like that five years, what did you do in that five years that set you up to be able to? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing, and I, I talk about this a lot because we're all getting you and I are getting so old now that what we are. <laughs> Our resume is becoming history, uh, thankfully still contemporary <laughs> history, but much closer to history than, uh, than to, uh, than not. But, uh, so effectively I'm, I was able at five points, I took a brunch shift that, that, that eventually led to getting behind the bar full time. And I almost was on the path to like becoming a wine professional. I was very interested in wine there. And I was thinking of, uh, moving forward with that. So my second opportunity came when two other restaurateurs I wanted to work with, Danny Abrams and Jimmy Bradley, opened a restaurant called Pache. And I asked them, they wanted me to come work for them. And I said, if you want me to come work for you, I want to work the floor selling wine and I want to run the bar program and create the cocktails. And they said, well, that position doesn't exist. And I said, well, if you want me to come work for you, create it. And so they did. So they let me be the bar manager, create the cocktail program, hire and train the staff and then work with the assist as the assistant wine director on the floor. So I did three nights on the floor as a Psalm, two nights behind the bar. And the restaurant was amazing. I worked with so many talented people, including Gabe Stolman, who's gone on to become one of the most successful restaurateurs in New York, who also work, were also were friends of Madison. Um, but the restaurant closed pretty quickly. And so when the ship was sinking, you know, to my chagrin, 
I had a coworker who worked at Gramercy Tavern who suggested that like that would be a great place for me to be because I, he noticed a lot of my passion was there. And then I also was able to get introduced to Audrey Saunders at, at Pache. Um, 2003, I think was the year four, was the advent of Google image search. So mm -hmm. right when Google image search came out, I Googled Audrey Saunders so I knew what she'd look like. <laughs> and I had a, a friend who was editing Food & Wine's cocktail book who I knew was communicating with her. I asked, his name was Rob Willie. I asked Rob if he could ask Audrey to come see me. And maybe like a month and a half later, she came in one night with her, uh, her friend Rob and they sat down and had dinner and they ordered dinner and wine. And I sent them a mid course. They didn't order any of my cocktails. And as I presented their mid course, I like sheepishly was like, um, I know who you are. <laughs> and I sort of like, you know, introduced myself and like asked them if I could make them cocktails. And I made, both of them, all of my cocktails and, and ended up giving her all my recipes as on their way out. And uh, we ended up meeting up at the Brandy Library, which was down the street for drinks. And then she invited me up to Bemelman's for another interview. And I basically begged my way onto the opening staff at the Pegu, which was like a year plus off. So I took the job at Gramercy. Um, there was a, I was the first bartender they'd hired, not from inside the house in years. But weirdly, like all these old time bartenders there left within the year. And I was able to work my way from like new bartender to head bartender at Gramercy. Pegu opened. Audrey let me just work one shift. And so for two years, I worked one shift a week at the Pegu Club, a million shifts a week at Gramercy. And then that guy, Rob Willie, who introduced me to Audrey, left Food and & Wine and suggested that I take over his position as editor of the Food & Wine cocktail book. So... I ended up adding that to the list too. So in 2006, I think I started doing that. And to be honest, between working at Pegu and Audrey introducing me to like all of these people I'd been reading about for years and Rob getting me into food and wine and Kate Crater hiring me to do that job, that gave me a plausible excuse to email people across the country to sort of introduce myself and publish their work. And I think that those those three things, Gramercy Tavern, um, the Pegu Club and Food and Wine really sort of like helped um, pave the way for an opportunity to, to open PDT uh, as a consultant in 2007. It was the, the one of my regulars at Five Points, that first job uh, was best friends with the owner of Crift Dogs. And they had opened Criff Dogs together and then had a falling out and Chris left. And then they'd kind of come back together as friends and were opening PDT. And they were kind of, the bar was sort of, they'd already taken over the space and were building this beautiful little bar. That was, and the, the phone booth idea was already in place. They knew how to build a kind of beautiful bar. They'd used Milk and Honey and Death and & Co. And mm -hmm. um mostly those two bars, I think, as inspiration from a design standpoint. But they needed someone to actually create a cocktail bar out of it. They had, like, a giant reach-in cooler behind the bar. Like, it was obvious that, like, they they didn't know how to create uh, bar stations and, and open up, you know, create cocktails and hire staff and do the rest of the, the management work. So I was initially brought in as a consultant. Um, when Brian didn't make me a partner, uh, in the beginning, I initially stayed at Pegu and Gramercy 
and brought John Darragon and John uh, and Don Lee in to, to actually manage it. And then about six months later, John and Don never quit their day jobs. So they were like at, with, at their wits end. And um, I was fired from Gramercy Tavern at some point during that stage for insisting that one of my regulars be served a Martinez that wasn't made with Peychaud's bitters. That was a, <laughs> that was a problem for my shift manager at Gramercy Tavern. So among with other zealotry of mine and, um, and then the Pegu club thing, like I just, I was the last opening bartender there by a long shot, you know, Phil Ward took a bunch of bartenders to open death and company. And it was just, it was time to go. So I ended up uh, leaving Pegu and being asked to leave Gramercy. And then suddenly, you know, PDT became something I should do for other reasons. So then it's, then I sort of relieved John and Don of their, you know, their management duties. They remained involved, of course, but they just, I, I kind of took on what they, what they helped build with me. It's interesting because I always like to try and put this in context, as you were saying, like a lot of our stuff is com- contemporary history, but to put it into context, like 2003, 2004, as you were saying, like Google image search had just been launched, like compared to today and some like, I, I love my kids and that sort of thing, but like you have a smartphone with like apps after app, after app, after app, cocktail knowledge. Like if you just type in recipe, Diffid's guide will have something, liquor.com will have something. But back in 2003 and four, and I remember those days back home in Australia, like you really had like the Chanticleer Society, maybe, and a few other research. But like, really, you had to go out and get books, buy books, pour through books for history notes or pour through books for recipes. Like, it I mean, wasn't I as easy it, as possible. People also don't understand that, like, the difference between dial-up internet speed and what we have on our <laughs> cell phones, like, in some ways, like, going to the library was quicker than waiting for your dial-up <laughs> modem. To like get to the Chanticleer Society, (laughs) you know, like when you refreshing a page could take 30 seconds, you know, like it was the Internet was not it was novel, but it was like a little bit better than a fax machine back then. And even 06, 07, when you when you took over PDT and then took over the role there, Facebook had just sort of become a thing like 07, like 06, 07. I remember when I was at Pegu. Angus Winchester and Phil Duff would, you know, and, and Jacob Breyers and, and Simon Ford, like the, it was the advent of, of brand ambassadors. And, and I think uh, Angus and Phil were the only ones doing international consulting in America at that point. And so when I wanted to find out what was going on in other countries' bar scenes, I didn't go to YouTube and see videos of it, or I didn't see it on Facebook or Instagram. I asked Phil or I asked Angus and they told me, you know, like it was, it was word of mouth what was going on in London or in Sydney or in Tokyo. Yeah. And I, I appreciate both Angus and, and Duff cause they've both been to Victoria and both bartended at Clive's. And so the, the, the word of mouth of Victoria is definitely something that's very odd to me still to this day. So, I'm curious about PDT because I know that cocktail bars were getting trendy with Pigu Club, Death and Company, um, that sort of thing, uh, Milk and Honey. Um, but again, as I said in the intro, there's something to be said about sticking to the mission statement that you lay out in the very beginning. 
because like you open a cocktail bar, great. Speakeasy style bars like Milk and Honey were becoming popular. But to stick to your guns consistently, because you're going to have good nights and bad nights, which you already have in bars and restaurants, but being a niche of a niche of a niche, your good and bad nights are very flicking back and forth. What sort of stuck that that mantra and that mission statement as you started taking over PT and starting to get more attention? Because that's always the hard thing with speakeasies. You get more attention, more people know where you are. Like the the secret telephone booth all of a sudden is not a secret no more. The funny thing with PDT is that I, as I said, Brian and Chris created PDT as a speakeasy. And the reason they did it wasn't because they want the, the, essentially the reason they did it was because had it had a street entrance, they would have needed to apply for another liquor license for the venue and they wouldn't have gotten it because the East Village was had a moratorium on liquor licenses and St. Mark's Place had, you know, 10 bars on the street. So the reason why the door was through the dining room of Criff Dogs and not on the street was because of that. And then the reason why they put a phone booth entrance, I think, is just because Brian and Chris were always high. You know what I mean? Like, And I think that a lot of the humor of Criff Dogs is a stoner skateboarder mentality. And I feel like that is from the video games to the WWF action figures to the like, I mean, Brian was like a, he's a stoner skateboarder. And so I feel like the, that sort of punk rock sort of like, like old school Powell and Peralta vision, you know, bones brigade, you know, sort of mentality is, was sort of, that was the Criff Dogs solution to a door. Like, of course you couldn't have a door. You had to have a phone booth, you know? Like, so I, I give Brian all the credit and Chris, all the credit in the world for doing that. But one of the things that, that I remember spending all of my time in the early days now saying is like, we are not a speakeasy. You know, what I was used to say is, you know, the prohibition era speakeasies were illegal first and foremost because they were operating without a license like we got raided within the first couple months of opening because the news got out there in the like there's a like a new york post article about you know the speakeasy so we got raided and, and the reason why we got raided is because the police were like a speakeasy is illegal we should go check this place out so, so real life prohibition style raid exactly so we did get raided and so like I always used to say, like we have a, no. This is a licensed bar, and the other thing I used to sort of talk about is like the the Prohibition era speakeasy was a sort of uh, you know they weren't known for cocktails. Like these were places that had maybe some of them had nice cocktails. Like I'm sure the Twenty One Club still had a nice selection of booze, but the like the speakeasies that gave New York its sort of swagger during Prohibition were not the 21 club, I imagine, I imagine they were in Harlem and they would have been places where maybe you'd see like Charlie Parker or some great jazz musician. And, and they were places where people of all different races and classes. And, and it was just, I imagine they were like a really fun, funky place to hang out. And PDT was not like, there was nothing. Uh, we were transgressive in the sense that we were, a cocktail bar attached to a hot dog stand. So there's always been this like yin yang of PDT from the Criff dog experience to the PDT experience, but certainly nothing as socially disruptive as a prohibition era speakeasy. Mm -hmm. So I spent my early days 
being like, we are not a speakeasy. We are not a speakeasy. And what my main goal was back then was really to take the sort of better tenants of fine dining is such a terrible term, but mm-hmm. to take the sort of tenants of hospitality and service that we used at Gramercy Tavern in the Pegu Club and bring them to the cocktail bar venue, you know, bring them to uh, PDT. And I think that the goal was to do so in a non rarefied experience. Like I think the Pegu Club was obviously one of the greatest bars of all time, but it, it definitely had like a very precious, refined, uh, luxurious feel to it. Uh, it was in Soho. It was, we were in like fancy uniforms. Like I remember people used to approach us there, like they were going to a great sushi bar. And I, and I feel like Gramercy Tavern was like one of the best restaurants in New York. So both of the places had this like air of luxury and refinement and, and they were like, you know, internationally known. Whereas at PDT, I wanted to serve hot dogs and tater tots and play Radiohead instead of be like in a, you know, three piece suit and playing, you know, jazz, you know? And like, so I feel like I didn't want PDT to be Boardwalk Empire. I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be something new and disruptive in that sense. And I feel like, you know, in some senses, I, I think that was, I think the phone booth, to be honest, is why we, you know, became so well known and busy. But what my contributions were really were to try to bring um, that yin yang sort of high low sense of like we take what we do seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Mm-hmm. And you can come here and get a great drink, and and still be in an environment that is, you know, welcoming and and hospitable. Yeah, it was funny in 2010. I was uh, lucky enough to go to cognac. And it was uh, with Sasha Petrescu and Salvatore Calabresi. Like, I, I just a, I should not have been there in any way, shape, or form with the people that I was there with at all. Toby Caccini, the whole shebang. Um, and I remember because the the cognac, um, uh, BNIC brought us all in and it was all about 1920s prohibition and how cognac played into that. And I remember like one of the very first days when the these the cognac people start talking about speakeasies da 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 and then they pitch it to Sasha because obviously Sasha milk and honey and then Sasha just drops the hammer on the same sort of thing you were talking about like about speakeasy culture and how it's it's romanced and all that sort of thing and cocktails weren't really a thing and then you just saw all these people who have brought this massive room of like industry leaders together face just drop because they were expecting the absolute opposite of what sasha was describing he's like yeah speakeasy culture like ruined cocktail culture ruined beer culture like ruined everything um but well the interesting thing now like years later that i've realized well first and foremost i should also say sasha was the reason why i did i never worked for sasha but i was so inspired by milk and honey and I feel like one of the reasons why I became famous is not because I deserve to be. It's because, no, Sasha refused to talk to the media and was very reclusive. So, I mean, I contribute a lot of my success in that space to Sasha refusing to, to accept the, the credit and recognition that he deserved. I'll also say that I think that we all got the brief wrong. And I think Sasha, if Sasha ever told us what he really thought, you know, I don't think we would have gotten the brief wrong, but I think that Sasha was inspired by Angel Share, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it is behind a secret door. 
upstairs in Stuyvesant Place in the East Village. So it has a, that in that sense, it's like speakeasy ish. But Angel Share is more of a Ginza style Tokyo bar. And I think that if we look back, bars like Milk and Honey or bars like PDT, while they have the, uh, you know, sort of the trappings of a prohibition era speakeasy, they're, they really are much more similar to Ginza Tokyo style cocktail mm -hmm. bars in concept and execution than they are to prohibition era speakeasies. Mm -hmm. And I think Angel's Share should be a bar which is still open, you know, to their credit and miraculously after this pandemic or during this pandemic. Um, Angel's Share, I feel like really should be repositioned as the, the bar in New York that really did start this all. Wow. So you are one of my only friends uh, and, and peers that have ever had the opportunity to meet Anthony Bourdain. I'm curious how that rolled out because that was an epic episode. That was the the layover in New York City and he took him to, took you to all the favorite places. And I think he came with David Chang, had hot dogs and, and cocktails. What was that experience like? You know, my brother was good friends with Anthony Bourdain and, and Chang was too. And to be honest, I obviously, I, I remember meeting Anthony Bourdain when I was in college in um, Madison. I think it probably was when, um, you know, his book came out, his first book came out. And I met him at the Orpheum, Orpheum Theater. Um, I mean, he was, he didn't know, I was nobody then. And, he, you know, he, like, I think I said hello to him or whatever. But I have to say, to be completely honest, I I could definitely say, and I'm sure anyone who watched the episode or met, who've ever met him, he hates fancy things. He hates yes. all fancy things. Like, and he hates anything that is remotely fancy. And while I don't think PDT is fancy, um, I think personally, like David Chang, David Chang loved PDT and brought so many people to PDT. And I think that he was only there because David Chang wanted to be there. And that was the only reason. And, um, and I think that maybe, I don't think, I think because he was only there because David Chang dragged him there. Like, I, even though he was friends with my brother, like he was not, he was not, uh, he was never interested in talking to me really. And not, I don't think he hated PDT, but um, I think his, his dislike and disinterested in anything that wasn't like an everyman type of experience, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, uh, you know, he was not interested in talking to me or <laughs> in hearing about PDT. And it's funny, like I, his agent, um, Kim Witherspoon is my book agent. And I would always, PDT would always do, he always, every year they did a fundraiser uh, for the KIPP schools in, in New York that were sort of like a, a school for, uh, like, I think it was a magnet school for kids who, you know, come from uh, financially challenging backgrounds. So every year I did my fun, I did my time at his fundraiser and he's always been very nice to me, like very friendly and polite, but I was not a very interesting person to him. <laughs> just because of the cocktails. To me is just like, you know, I think that the, you know, Anthony Bourdain is, he was six foot three or he was very tall, very handsome, ridiculously smart. And his, his charisma, you know, he filled every room he was in, no matter what room he was in. He was a, he was just a rock star. And I think that, um, 
you know, I can't imagine the challenges he must have faced personally with, you know, people wanting to talk to him, wanting to be around him, wanting to be close to him. So um, I, I don't hold any of this against him. <laughs> so let's, it was a perfect segue into your book. Now, the PDT Coxer book 2011, beautifully, beautifully illustrated, but that's not the one I want to talk about. I want to talk about one that I think is if you're a hardcore cocktail geek and bartender geek, um, the bartender manual from 2017, I believe, is the closest thing that the modern bartender has to the Harry Johnson book. Harry Johnson's book was completely different than Jerry Thomas's at that time. It was about systems and ordering and bar layout and design and all the systems, none of the foof, like all the steak, none of the sizzle. So I think the bartender's manual is the closest thing for us in the 21st century to have, well, the 21st century to have that style of Harry Johnson really in-depth look at bar design, how things are laid out, how people do operations and stuff. And as you said in the very beginning, like the the work he did in that sports bar in Wisconsin is not much different to the work he did at PDT, just a different style of drink. The foundation is still the same. It's just the building above that is very different. So what was the, what was the driving force behind the bartender manual? It's funny. And thank you for what you said. It, um, I would say that, you know, having in 2005, when I started working at the Pegu Club, Audrey brought her, not maybe all, but a lot of her books to the bar. So there, there was an 1862 Jerry Thomas behind the bar. There was a leather bound uh, gentleman's companion. There was David Embury and all these amazing books. And for me, they were like, it was like working in Noah's Ark because these were the books that I'd like seen in the bibliography of the joy of mixology or the craft of the cocktail or vintage spirits and forgotten cocktails. And I'd never seen them. And so I had bought a couple of like reproductions of them. But as soon as I actually saw them, I like fell in love with cocktail book collecting. And, and so I, I sort of very much did base the, the manual around the, Harry Johnson's Bartender's Guide and the Hoffman House Bartender's Guide, which for me are the two books that really got into the nitty gritty of the of bartending, because I feel like bartending is a detail oriented business. It is not, uh, it looks like a lot of grandstanding on the internet, but it really is about the details. And so um, the story behind that book really was I'd always dreamt of writing a book like that probably towards the end of my career. And right before I left New York, I was um, uh, an editor at, uh, at, a, at a publisher who didn't publish the book, um, asked for a meeting with me to talk about cocktail books. And so I went in and told her, I thought she just wanted to talk about the, the genre you know, of cocktail books and what was out there. And she asked me, she's like, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to do next? Because I, I, I didn't talk about what I was wanted to do or myself. I just talked about cocktail books. And, and I told her that, you know, well, at some point I'd always dreamt of writing a manual and told her about it. And she's like, well, that sounds really interesting. Like, you know, would you would you be interested in writing that for us? And I like almost fell off my chair. And so I went, she's like, well, I'm like, well, what do you need? And I said, she said, you know, just need this, like, a, you know, a, an outline. And so I ended up basically calling my agent and being like, I just went and spoke to this woman at this publishing house and she's ready to offer me a book deal on this book. So I refined the the proposal and she showed it to a couple of other publishers and, and 10 speed took it. So I signed the book deal 
write my last year of New York and then spent three years writing it. And to be honest, it, um, it was something I thought I would write later in my career after I'd learned more and had more experience, but the opportunity presented itself. And in retrospect, you know, having left New York now, it'll be seven years ago in August, I feel very fortunate to that that happened because I feel like so much of success is a byproduct of timing and luck. And I feel mm -hmm. like I was very fortunate that that editor was interested in that book because I think her interest, her name is Emily Takudas, um, her interest validated the idea of being able to write something like that. At the time, there was nothing like it on the market, you know, and I think that that is, um, I, you know, I feel very grateful. And, and I think the, the, what the book is in a nutshell is it's Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance for bartenders. It, it, the, the premise of the book, if you read it closely, is that bartending is, is a lot like life. And, and so instead of like, if I think that, you know, bartending is a job that is a life job and it is a problem solving job and life is problems. Life is all about problem solving. So that was the goal is to write a detailed book about bartending that someone who wasn't a bartender could read and be like, you know what? I'm not a bartender, but I could actually apply some of these mm -hmm. ideas in my job, you know, as a carpenter or as an insurance salesperson or a college professor. Yeah. A lot of people ask me, and I'm sure this is going to be the same for you because we're going to get into your side hustles in a second. A lot of people go, well, how do you like, how do you do all these jobs? How do you have all these companies with these different partners and projects and all that sort of stuff? I'm like, it's chits on the bar. It's a Friday night and I have, six chits in front of me. I take a chit, I make it, I stab it and go to the next chit. And that's how I, that's how I apply everything I do on a daily basis is imagining that I'm on the bar on a Friday night with six chits in front of me with three drinks per drink thing and just bang it out and just keep moving along, moving along, moving along. And then another print will come up. Um, so you are, like I, I said in the, in the intro that you have a huge amount of side hustles do you actively go out and find these these product <laughs> developments and these new products and stuff that you've developed over the years so you've just a quick little one you've done banks rum which was a huge one um obviously the me handbag has become legendary my my good friend uh solomon uh had his office broken into and his me handbag stolen which he is devastated oh, no. about but the insurance company is paying to have one custom made from the original makers like from scratch like they're making one from scratch for him he's gonna lose That's all his so tools awesome. but like he reached out and the insurance company's like yeah how much is it and he's like well it's like five grand and he's like yep yeah, cool we'll pay for it and so he's getting his whole me handbag made from scratch brand new just for him which is incredible the funny thing is we designed the there's a new version of the bag that's ready to go and then the pandemic happened so mm. i'm still i'm hoping the version he's gonna get then is the new bag because there were multiple prototypes of both the roll-up and the bag and then the pandemic happened so i'm still you know in conversations with more and giles to see if i can get them to to bring this new because it's been 10 years now this is the 10-year anniversary of that project wow. um but obviously the pandemic was one of those things like where everyone had to sort of shift what they were doing so I, I i wasn't bummed that they shelved it but i am hoping that they might bring it back you've done the eastern imperial grapefruit soda 
Did you have I, – I remember it seeing it in the article, but I can't seem to find it. You, did you have a bar cart at one stage as well that you designed? So with Morin Giles, we did – we started with the roll-up and the bar cart, and then we went from there. The bullet Woody was actually designed by Brad Ford and I with a – Brad Ford's like an interior designer in New York. Um, and then there was a guy named John who was designing these teardrop trailers in, in um, Virginia. So John, we took John's teardrop trailer and Brad and I designed what is now the Bullet Woody. And it was initially designed for an AIDS charity fundraiser um, that was like a big part of a big design gala. And Bullet liked it and bought it at auction and then they had another one made. So we did that second. And then we did the, um, we did the leather bound edition of the PDT book. And then we did the, uh, the, the sidecar was what the bar cart was called. So we did the sidecar and then I redesigned the bag and the roll up with more and Giles. And I'm just trying to get them to bring that back out. And then I've also, we were working on a sort of like a, not a sidecar, but like a sort of another bar cart idea that was, that wasn't going to be like $15,000 that was also <laughs> shelved by the pandemic. So I've, I've had a long standing collaboration with, more and Giles that has been great. I love that. So company. are these collaborations and these products and stuff like that, do they usually come to you or do you see an, an area of the industry that you feel like you need to fill? Because obviously so you have an I, entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> well, the, the thing that's sort of, I remember sort of having to confess this uh, in another interview. And it, it, I think that there's two things that I feel like people probably don't know about me. One is I'm very risk averse. Like I, and I'm especially risk averse with my own money because I don't, I don't come from money and I'm, and I, and I like things more than money. So, so my, my career is not led to a large bank account. Um, and so, so you have the same relationship that my wife and I have with me not doing things for money. She's like, why don't you pay charge for that? I'm like, it's just me hang, hanging out and giving my opinion. Why should I charge for that? Well, <laughs> I find that, that you do have to like figure out to a certain point, like who can afford to pay you and who can't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what I've always tried to sort out is like, is the person that I'm working with, can they afford me or can they afford to compensate me in the work? And whether that's, you know, in royalties or upfront or, you know, is, is another, you know, is always a conversation. But I think that a, I don't have, I, I think the thing that, that I would say is that because I am not rich, I do not decide what my projects are. And I think it's a humbling thing for me to admit, but, a lot of times the people who you see doing a lot of these cool projects come from family money or during the course of their career, they've, they've kind of found favor with wealthy benefactors. And I unfortunately uh, have not fallen in with any Saudi princes or <laughs> Russian oligarchs, um, maybe because I don't really prefer the values of Saudi princes and Russian <laughs> oligarchs, and we don't really get on very well, but that's for the political uh, version of our talk. But uh, so, yeah, I don't have any wealthy benefactors to bring all my ideas to life. So all of these opportunities have literally fallen out of the sky. Um, thank you, Lord. Uh, and And just... I've just been very fortunate to pick up the phone or answer the email or be in the bar when someone comes and asks and cultivated the relationships. 
Wow. So what's what how's how has the pandemic been for you? We were talking offline about it. How's the pandemic for you and, and what's the plan for the next uh six to twelve months? I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but what's the plan for the next six to twelve months and how has overall the pandemic been for you? Um I, I mean the I feel very, 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 very fortunate that Bacardi uh did not was able to find a way to keep me on my role with banks, you know, I, I play a, I sort of am in a position where I work not as a brand ambassador anymore, but almost as an, as a sort of, you know, uh, sort of assistant or advisor to the like brand director. So I was working with the brand director in the U S and the brand director in Europe. And so Will and Taylor found a way to keep me involved all year, which was, huge for me there was there was a lot of work to be done behind the scenes there and then american express as as well like i create the drinks for the american express mm-hmm. centurion lounges and i was they were able to also keep me involved so those are my two primary jobs a year ago i was supposed to open a restaurant uh my first opportunity here in portland with snow peak and submarine hospitality that's been tabled for a whole year and we've been very fortunate where where Snowpeak opened their flagship store in, I think it was November last year, and they, they've delayed the restaurant until May. So actually in one month, we'll open this restaurant to Kibi, which we've been working on for two years. So I'm now back in meetings and, and back, back to work doing that. And that'll definitely keep me busy for the next six to 12 months. And then I was supposed to turn in a book for 10 speed in February. Um, and I'm, I'm hustling to get that done in the next couple months to keep my pub date in 2022. But I've been working for the last two years as well on a new book. Um, so I've been very, I've been staying busy. I think that as an American, um, it's been a really, really hard year. Last year with the, I mean, Trump was a an absolute disaster for four years uh, for our country and, and, it was just a, I mean, I railed against that presidency for four years. There wasn't a single day that I didn't uh, express my public, you know, humiliation, disdain. <laughs> disdain for him and for his government. So I was, as a patriotic American, it was very hard to be an American for the last four years and um, particularly his last year. Um, the forest fires in the Pacific Northwest uh, last year were, we had to flee our house. Uh, Portland was, had the worst air quality in the world. Um, and obviously the, our country's response to the pandemic under Trump has, was just a human, a human catastrophe of biblical proportions. So I had a hard time writing that book uh, over the last year and I had a hard time focusing and Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a really, really rough year. I mean, we spoke about it before we spoke, yeah. before we went on camera or on, on tape. But I feel very fortunate that, you know, having at the time I was still involved with PDT in Hong Kong. So I saw this kind of coming from Wuhan and, and saw mm-hmm. China mm-hmm. And, and Asia beginning to gear up for this when it was just, um, you know, when it was just local. Um, so I knew that this was going to potentially be, grow into a pandemic and, and I was taking it very, very seriously as early as February. And then mm-hmm. 
thankfully, America finally realized that this was something to conspiracy in March. But it's just, it, in one sense, I feel very fortunate. But on the flip side, and this, I, I think we talked about it before, but the pandemic has obviously, you know, raised so much of our awareness uh, around so many things that matter to us, like health means so much more. And um, yeah, it's been, a, and I also think the social justice protests in Portland last year and, and now, you know, back in full force with the latest round of American police murders, it's just been it's been a rough year. So I feel like I'm hoping that under this new presidency with these vaccines rolling out that, um, that America will re kind of gain its sense of, uh, values. Cause we, we've, we've been adrift. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, my friend. Uh, it was absolute onyx. I remember we, I talked, reached out to you in, I think June last year where this is your conversation just now is exactly like I reached out and said, like, Hey, you want to be on the podcast? And you're like, you know what, dude? Like I just, I can't right now. And I'm like, cool. I, I feel you. I completely understand. Um, but I'm really happy that you get to be my 250th episode of the post shift. Um, it means a huge amount. Um, I always say this when I we had a chance to interview people like yourself, like I'm still that. 26 year old Australian kid who moved to Canada and am still fan like still a massive fanboy and I'm I'm fortunate and lucky enough that I've been able to hang out and chat with you and and meet people like yourself and now I have the opportunity to call people like yourself friends when I still am that that kid who was trying cocktail culture in Brisbane in 2001 and two so I want to thank you so much for your kids at heart you know I, (laughs) I appreciate it you know what I mean like I feel like that's the weirdest thing about getting old is like you're trapped in this body that's constantly sore and tight and like losing its hair for me, you know, like at least you still got that 26 year old had a hair there. I mean, like, yeah. But it's all white. It's all white and gray all in here. I'll trade you. <laughs> well, thanks so much again for your time, Jim. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'll chat to you very, very soon. Congrats on the 250th. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.